We're uh, continuing our series on the book of 1 John. And uh, I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. 1 John 4, 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts this morning uh, through your word. And Lord, we're coming from a variety of backgrounds. Um, Some of us are convinced of what we read. Some of us are unconvinced. Uh, Some of us bring heavy baggage into this room. Uh, Some of us are just bored. Uh, Lord, wherever you find us this morning, would you speak to us? And would you give us your truth and your grace? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, we're on like week seven now of working our way through this book called 1 John. And uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, this book is written by one of Jesus' best friends, the Apostle John. And uh, he's writing this book when he's probably in his 80s. So he's on in years, he's outlived the other apostles. And he's writing to a network of churches in first century Asia Minor who were in danger of falling for counterfeit Christianity. And that's why we've called this series Real Christianity. Because John says the easiest way to spot a counterfeit is to be incredibly familiar with the real thing. And this counterfeit Christianity, as we've talked about all through our series, it wasn't coming from outside the church. It was actually coming from within. There were people who were very knowledgeable, seemed very spiritual, but John said are very dangerous. And one of the reasons they were dangerous is what they were saying. They didn't think they were destroying Christianity. They thought they were improving it, giving it an upgrade, making it more palatable to the first century Greco-Roman world. And John, being in his 80s, he ain't playing around. And so as we've seen, he draws very stark contrasts throughout his letter. And we've mentioned again and again that one of the reasons he does this is because clarity is really important in seasons of confusion. And John, as we've also noted, he he doesn't write like a number of the other New Testament writers. This doesn't read like a legal brief, like a long linear argument. It's more like a musical composition. John revisits the same themes again and again and again, adding nuance and layers of instrumentation 
and taken us deeper into our understanding of those themes over and over. And last week, uh, we were looking at the passage right before this, and we talked about how John writes that everyone is in one of two spiritual families, and that love is part of the DNA of the family of God. But when we don't love well, we don't heal the inner voice of condemnation by looking inside ourselves for the inner voice of affirmation. We actually look outside of ourselves to God and his promises. And that raises an important question, doesn't it? Who speaks for God? Which voices come from his spirit? And that's what John is talking about in the passage we're looking at this morning. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I guess that you have. There has been a resurgence of interest in spirituality in our day. Uh, you, you, you don't have to look very far. Uh, it's on the bookshelves. Uh, it's on the internet. There's YouTube channels that are devoted to it. There's articles that show up in the New York Times. You can even read about, and we love this in the Silicon Valley, scientific studies on spirituality. It's everywhere. And it's fascinating because if you rewind the tape a few decades, the prediction by all those in the know was spirituality is on its way out. As we become more educated, as the world becomes more industrialized, there will be less and less place for the spiritual in our lives because we know more and more. But almost the exact opposite has happened. And you have people writing about that now. Why is that the case? But everyone agrees spirituality has made a comeback. And it's the comeback of all comebacks. And if you look at it on a global scale, right, spirituality is showing up everywhere. Now, some people would say uh, this is in reaction to the dominance of a naturalistic worldview. It, le- it left people hungry for ultimate significance and meaning. Uh, it made people uncomfortable living in a flat, one-dimensional world. And so the human spirit rebelled and countless spiritualities rushed to fill fill the vacuum. And this is kind of a a good news, bad news thing for people who follow the Christian faith. On the one hand, there's an openness to talking about spirituality. Interest is peaked. People are excited. They're willing to listen. They're willing to engage. They're willing to explore a little bit. But on the other hand, there are a flood of options. And no matter who you are or where you're coming from, you can probably find one that fits you and your truth. And that's kind of where we're at today. And what I want to begin with is this. Everybody's interested, everybody who's interested in spirituality is interested in making spiritual progress. And the first point I want to mention is this. There is no spiritual progress apart from spiritual discernment. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, John writes. This is John writing as a tender old pastor. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we desperately need to hear this. Especially in a cultural moment where it's very in vogue to say, I'm spiritual but not religious. There are many ways to be spiritual. They're not all the same. And they're not all good. And what John is warning against here 
is what we might call spiritual gullibility. Now, I just love saying the word gullible. It just rolls off the tongue and it, it feels like it means what it sounds like. Gullible, right? Gullible. It's like you just swallow stuff and you just receive it. It's, it's gullible, right? And it means to be naive, easy to fool, susceptible to deception. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, I know people like that. Right? You know, it's fascinating. There is a whole enterprise right now of exploring, exploring the science of gullibility. Actually, I read this article in 2000, from 2009 where it's talking about, we haven't researched this, this very well. And so, you know, of course, that's like PhD people are like, dissertation topics. So all these, these studies have been done on gullibility. And you know what they've discovered? We don't really understand the psychology of gullibility. But for some reason, gullibility is endemic to the human condition. We tend to believe things that we shouldn't believe. We tend to receive things that we shouldn't receive. And everybody thinks, like, I'm not a gullible person. I'm a person of science, you know, or I follow the data. But you look around enough in our lives and you find gullibility all over the place. And what John says is this. You need to be discerning. You need to test the spirits. And you'll notice we've looked at several tests that John has given us throughout this letter. And those tests were about testing ourselves. But now he's talking about testing the spirits. And I want to be very clear. He's not talking about interviewing ghosts. Like, hello, what is your name? Where are you from? You know, that's not, that's not what John is, is talking about here. John is talking about weighing and evaluating messages. There are spiritual forces of darkness at work, to be sure. But even when you read the New Testament, what you find is that they are often working through human agency. And John wants his flock to be able to discern between true and false teaching. Between true and false teachers. And you know, this was something that Jesus warned about. In Matthew chapter 24, he tells his disciples that ahead of them will be seasons of false messiahs and false prophets. People who can do spectacular things. And if you're not careful, they will deceive you and lead you astray. So John is warning us because Jesus had warned him. And John is saying, little flock, my beloved... You, you need to be discerning. Don't be gullible. So the question comes is, how do you avoid being spiritually gullible? And this is what John writes. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There's many ways to be spiritual. They're not all the same. They're not all good. And what John insists on is a spirituality centered on Jesus. But not just any Jesus. Jesus the Christ come in the flesh. Now you might say, this doesn't feel very helpful to me. right? If someone says Jesus Christ came in the flesh, they're in. If they deny that, they're out. But if you've been reading the whole letter, you understand that John is using shorthand. What he means by this statement is... Jesus is the unique and eternal Son of God. Go back to chapter 1. 
That's a reference to his deity. And this unique and eternal son of God put on humanity, became one of us. That's called the incarnation. And he did this in order to suffer and die in his body as a sacrifice for our sins. That's called atonement. And he rose in his body to conquer death. That's called resurrection. And John adds the twist. And now he sits at the father's right hand as our heavenly advocate. You see what John is doing? John is, John is bundled together the basic affirmations of the historic Christian faith in a single phrase. And he says, it is by this that we recognize the work of God's spirit. Now, let me tease that out for a moment. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, isn't primarily recognized by supernatural miracles or emotional highs or wild and crazy moments. He is recognized through his witness to Jesus. It's not the work of the spirit of God if it doesn't magnify Jesus. Or to say it another way, if it's, a lead, if it's leading you away from Jesus and his work in the flesh for our salvation, it's not the Holy Spirit. Do you know that this is, this is what Jesus himself taught? In that great farewell speech that runs from John 14 through John 17 and includes his great high priestly prayer, he told his disciples, he said, look, I'm going away. But when I go, I will send you the Holy Spirit, another paraclete, and he will be with you, your comforter. And then he says, he is the helper. So you say, how does he help? What does this helper do? And this is what Jesus says. He will guide you into all truth, chapter 16, verse 13, and he will glorify me. The ministry of the Spirit is to glorify the Son. Everything he does is towards that end. So do not think that you or anyone else, including me, is full of the Spirit if we're not focused on the Son. Look, the Holy Spirit is not some mystical force that you plug into to unlock your potential. And he's not some peddler of ecstatic religious experience, however dramatic His work might be on occasion. Holy Spirit is not a circus producer putting on a freak show for our entertainment. He is a divine person, the third person of the Trinity, in eternal fellowship with the Father and the Son, co-conspirator in the plan of salvation. And his focus is spotlighting the glorious work of Jesus the Son to the glory of God the Father. Let me say it really simply. The Holy Spirit is constantly pointing people to Jesus and his work. There are leaders, there are influencers. They'll use the name of Jesus. They'll talk about the Spirit and sometimes do dazzling things. But ultimately point people to themselves and not to Jesus. John says that to turn away from this central confession, this central ministry of the Spirit is actually to be moved by a different spirit. And he calls it the spirit of Antichrist. 
verse 3. Now, I know some of you here are like, oh boy, here we go, right? You may not be a Christian. You might be exploring Christianity. You're like, I know a little bit about this Antichrist. I've seen some Hollywood movies. Like, this is weird. I'm leaving as soon as he gets done with this sermon. Others of you are like, yes, I grew up in the Bible church. Finally, you're talking about Antichrist. Yes, when is it coming? You know, who's it going to be? What will he look like? And let me just say, the way John is using this here is not referring to a political figure that comes at the end of times to dominate the world. John says the spirit of Antichrist is at work now in the world already into verse 3. Because the way John is using it is to describe a spiritual substitute for Jesus. An anti-Jesus. An other Jesus, if you will. John is talking about something besides Jesus that you ultimately look to in order to heal and mend and make right. Now, I could trip out right now on all the cults and other religions, and y'all would probably love it. We could talk about Jehovah's Witness and how they misunderstand Jesus and Mormons and Christian science, and then we get to Islam, and like everybody would be having a good time, right? And we'll probably do a Grace You class on that at some point. But I don't think that's where most of us find ourselves vulnerable. We find ourselves vulnerable in all sorts of other ways where we miss the significance of this core confession of the Christian faith. Let me give you an example. I hear this uh, quite a bit, um, and maybe, maybe you think this, but you say, in your heart you might say, you know, I really like the teachings of Jesus, but I'm not really all that interested in the doctrines about him. Doctrine divides. It just gets in the way. Let's just follow the teachings of Jesus. I like the teachings of Jesus. And I I just want to say, actually, you don't. (laughs) Or at least you don't like some of them. You don't like the ones where he says, I and the Father are one. Or when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Or when Jesus said, I have come to offer my life as a ransom for many. Those are teachings of Jesus. Do you like those? You see, all of us have a tendency to try to crop Jesus. You know, you know crop, like, do we even use that anymore? I might be like dating myself. We don't, do we crop pictures? We still crop pictures. Cropping Jesus to make him fit some understanding that is more suitable to us or more tasteful to us. And boy, there are... A, a number of different versions. You can find a Republican Jesus if you want to. And you can find a Democrat Jesus if you want to. You can find the life coach Jesus. You can find the therapist Jesus. You can find the revolutionary Jesus. You can, you can find all kinds of edited versions of Jesus to begin to orient your life around. But what John says is you have to understand that is a substitute For the real thing. That is an anti-Jesus. That's an anti-Christ. Hard words to hear, right? But words given in love. And words of warning. Because John himself had received the warning. There's countless versions of Jesus out there. But there is only one version who can save. And that is the version who is the divine son of God, who put on flesh, 
who suffered and died as an atoning sacrifice and rose victoriously from the dead. Only that Jesus can be our heavenly advocate. And what John says, he's not saying this to make us nervous. He's not saying this so you live an unsettled Christian life. He actually is saying this to give you assurance and comfort. In verse 4, he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. That is the lies. For he who is in you is greater than he is in, in the world. He's saying, in this Jesus, we actually have the victory that we want. The Greek word that he uses for conquer is nikao. And it is the word from which we get the word Nike, right? Champion, victor, victorious. And it is Jesus's victory, not ours. But in him, we have the victory. We have the answer to our longing for the end of sin and sorrows. In him, we have the answer to our suffering and our shame. And it is this Jesus and this Jesus alone. And John says, I don't want you falling for the counterfeits. This is where our life is supposed to be rooted. This is where we have life. Now, you know what's interesting to me about this is the simplicity of John's statement actually is very helpful for any Christian community because it gives us a center to be rooted in and it helps us prioritize the things of first importance and distinguish them from the things of secondary importance. What do I mean by that? Every congregation... The church, every church, is described as the body of Christ in the New Testament. You know, a body, in order to stay healthy, has to have an immune system. But in some congregations, those congregations have an autoimmune disorder. You know what that is? It's when the immune system attacks the healthy cells. And this happens when you make some secondary doctrine or tertiary doctrine the main thing. So that anybody who steps over the line, boom, they get the blast, right? You're crushed. And you create cults and sects out of that. Not sex, S-E-X, but S-C-C-T-S, right? Follow me. That's, that's an autoimmune disorder. It's where the body of Christ turns on itself. And it's savage and brutal. But you know what another problem is on the other side? is being immunocompromised where the immune system doesn't work at all and you're susceptible to infections from without the viruses and bacteria but also infections from within the cancer and John is saying a healthy and robust immune system for the body of Christ is when this central confession is held on to for dear life that is the work of the Spirit to magnify the work of the Son. And it is the thing that protects God's people from counterfeits. Now, you might be asking, like, why should we be listening to you, Pastor? And that's a very fair question. And you might even say, like, why should we listen to John? And it's interesting because John ends by answering this very question. And what he writes in verses 5 and 6 is basically there's an echo chamber that we all recognize in the world where we just find the place that just feeds back to us like what we already think. And it has a certain character to it. Um, it has similarities, same philosophies, ideologies, sensibilities. They just get, you know, 
They just get trafficked over and over again, bounce back and forth. And John is inviting us into a different circle, the circle of the church built on this foundation. And you could be like, why should I listen to him? And this is what John writes. Whoever knows God listens to us. And you might say, not helpful. That sounds very arrogant. It sounds like John is saying, if you don't agree with my opinion, you're not of God. But John isn't speaking as a lone individual to say, just listen to me. My opinion is the right one. John is speaking as an apostle amongst the apostles. The we, the us that he's been writing about who have the authorization of Jesus behind them. There is a logic and a structure to God's revelation of himself. If you're willing to look at the whole story. Go back into the Old Testament. When God did something big and stupendous, like the great rescue of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. What did he do right after that? He raised up Moses. He made a covenant with his people. And he gave them his law, his rules and his command. We looked at that. This past summer, the Ten Commandments. And he said, this is how I want you to order your life as my redeemed people. As people in covenant with me. Then when the great exile came. And Israel was taken into captivity. God raised up the prophets. And they they made a covenant lawsuit against God's people. Said, you have broken this covenant that God made with you. This is why judgment has come on you. But I have some good news. God himself is going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to fix this. This is his promise. He will be your God and you will be his people. And the prophets explained and applied all this. And then hundreds of years later, Jesus, the promised one, shows up. And as we rehearse every single Sunday on the night on which he was betrayed... He takes the bread and he takes the cup and he says, this is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. The greatest rescue of all rescues. God himself showing up in the person of his son to live and to die for sinners and be raised. And what does he do immediately after? He appoints apostles to go out and explain and apply the significance of his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. The whole story is a story that is centered on Jesus. The full and final revelation of who God is. And we have to ask, which story are we listening to? And what's at the center of that story? Which story are we living out? Is it the one with Jesus at the center? With his life, his death, his resurrection in the flesh for the forgiveness of our sins and renewal of our life? Or is it our own story of advancement and improvement and of growth and a development? And Jesus becomes an accessory to this. The Holy Spirit becomes an accessory to this. There's a big difference between the two. You know, a lot of times... We like to discern things based on our feelings. And some of you are really good at this, right? You've, you've got your gut is awesome. Your spidey sense, like it tingles. And you just, you kind of navigate through life like that. But when it comes to discerning the work of the spirit, 
Our feelings are not enough. Because our feelings lead us to say things like, worse version is, but this is my truth. This is my truth. Maybe a better version of that is, this really resonates with me. I like that one a little bit better. But, um, but truth isn't merely subjective. It's objective. It's transcendent. It's universal. And living my truth, it sounds great until it bumps up against your truth. And you know, your truth and my truth, they're on a collision course and it happens over and over and over again. And when your truth bumps into my truth, we need the truth to help us figure out how to clean up the mess and how we're going to move forward. And John is saying, if you want the truth, listen to the story, follow the witnesses, and I'm writing it down. And this ministry of the spirit through the apostles became inscripturated in what we call the New Testament scripture. And the Holy Spirit still uses it to open eyes and open ears and open hearts to do what? To magnify the work of Jesus the Son. You know, I've been reading a lot um, the past really few years on the topic of deconstruction. And most of you are probably familiar with that word. Uh, People who go through a deconstruction of their faith. And I think it's important to say, like, we should be careful about how we use that word because it doesn't always mean the same thing or refer to the same experiences uh, all the time. There's actually a marvelous little article on Mockingbird.com called Deconstruction Disambiguated. That's a cool word, disambiguated, meaning taking out the ambiguity here. And it gives a very careful, focused attention to the variety of deconstruction experiences. But one of the things that we should recognize in the church is this. Sometimes it's actually a good thing when we are deconstructing false beliefs and reconstructing true ones. If we're listening carefully to the story of the scriptures. If we're using the scriptures to self-correct. If we're utilizing the scriptures to evaluate toxic environments. And there are many. But there are other kinds of deconstruction that are not on the basis of the witness of the spirit through the scriptures. But they're on the basis of therapists and gurus and influencers. And John says, that's listening to the world. Speaking back to you what your heart wants, but not what it needs. I was listening to a podcast this past week by um, Preston Sprinkle. He runs the Theology and Raw podcast. And he had on a guy, his name is Tony Scarcello. Tony Scarcello is the pastor of uh, Open Table Church in Springfield, Oregon. And uh, Tony Scarcello talks about his journey out of fundamentalism. Grew up in fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, he, he said, you know, he had all the right answers on everything and then sort of he ran into life and he discovered that his fundamentalism was rigid and brittle. And so he moved in to uh, more progressive spaces. He tried on all the Christianity reimagined, Christianity upgraded Christianity for the 21st century movements and lived in that orbit for years and years and years. And then he said, but then... What I discovered surprised me. It was just as rigid and brittle. And it could not bear up against the weight of the world. 
But more importantly, it could not help me deal with what was wrong with me. And so he made a return to a more robust orthodoxy rooted in the work of God in the person of his son. And found his hope in this very confession that John writes about. Listen, friends, divine love is not just a nice idea out there. Something you grab hold of in the distressing moments of life to make yourself feel a little bit better. What John is writing about is this. Divine love actually put on flesh. Became embodied. Was tangible in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most radical expression of God's love the world has ever seen. Why wouldn't that be the center of true spirituality? What else is is worthy of that central place? And yet, again and again, each of us can recognize that we want to make ourselves the center of the spiritual life. As if knowing ourselves and believing in ourselves and improving ourselves was the beginning and end of authentic spirituality. Or the true purpose and goal or the way in which things are made right. And what John says is never forget, Jesus the Christ come in the flesh is the central thing. His death is central to our spiritual life. No flesh, no crucifixion. No crucifixion, no resurrection. No resurrection, no Christianity. I know some of you are like, okay, you're doing the doctrine thing again. I don't believe in doctrine. I don't really like doctrine. All that matters is how you live. Do you live a good life? But you know, that statement is very doctrinal. And there's a name for it. The name of it is justification by works. God is pleased with me when I am good. All that matters to him is that I be good. But what happens when I'm not good enough? The doctrine of Christianity is very different. It says no matter how bad you've been, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have gone, if you're willing to humble yourself and cry out to God, you can find grace and not just grace as an idea, but grace embodied in a person living and dying for you. And John says, grab onto that with both hands. Never let go. You know what happens when you do? Jesus' death, Jesus' life, which is the center of the story, actually begins to shape your story. It becomes the pattern for your life. Jesus said, if anyone wants to know life, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. John, last week, said, as Jesus laid down his life, so we should lay down our life for each other. Paul writes that the goal is that you and I would be conformed to the image of Jesus, his son. Conformed to Jesus. Not to an idealized version of ourselves. And that's where we begin to lose our way, isn't it? Because our way is really this. Help me become more me. But the gospel way is draw me more deeply into worshiping the son. And what John writes about this at the end of his letter is this. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the way it cuts through and and cuts deep at times because we know what we need most is what you've revealed in the story you're telling, that we need the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and the renewal of our life. So God, would you root us in this? Would you plant us in this? Would you grow us in this? And would you guard us from counterfeits, from substitutes, from diversions and distractions that really don't have life in them? And may may we more and more enjoy and celebrate the life that we have in your son. Would you do that in our lives now, whether that's for the millionth time or for the first time ever? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.